Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome three guests. All three have had intersection with the issue of disability. Shannon Dingle, well-known and beloved writer, is a contributor to USA Today, Teen Vogue, and The Washington Post. Lisa Anderson is the Vice President of Embodied Justice Leadership at Auburn Seminary, where she founded the Sojourner Truth Leadership Circle. And finally, Amy Kenny recently had a byline in Sojourners explained that she is a Shakespeare professor who hates Hamlet. (laughs) And she's also disabled and has no time for your ableism. So I've asked these three amazing women to come talk with us on Freedom Road today about disability and its multiple intersections with other oppressions and issues of life. We would love to hear your thoughts. So please tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks. Our subscribership is growing. We want you to subscribe, by the way. Don't just tag in. Subscribe so that it drops in to your box wherever you get your podcasts, okay? Keep it coming. All right. So friends, I remember my very first interaction with the issue of disability as an adult. I had just given an early version of my talk on Shalom. In that early conception, I hadn't yet learned about the Hebrew understanding of tov, goodness, and extreme goodness, which is, you know, perfection as we would understand it. So I gave a talk, right? I gave my talk on Shalom, and I was still kind of thinking of that, of Tav as existing inside the thing. In other words, the thing itself is perfect. So I just preached that everything in creation was very good. And in God's perfect world, nobody is disabled. I said that. I actually said that in the talk. And a woman raised her hand afterwards, and she said, are you saying that I won't be disabled in heaven? And, you know, without batting an eye, I said, yes. And she pushed back. She said, but but my ability is part of who I am. It's how God created me. How am I supposed to receive that? And so I carried, ooh, that just, that really, honestly, that got right under my skin. And I carried that with me for years. And I went back to the drawing board. So I want to ask you three amazing women, all of whom have intersection with the issue and experience of disability, how does your story intersect with that experience? I'll start with Shannon. We'll go down the line in terms of how I introduced you and just jump in after that. Okay. So Shannon? I'm not sure where in my story I don't intersect with disability. I was born with speech impairments that I still actively work on Mm -hmm. not 
not impacting what my speech when I'm speaking, or at least the understanding of my speech. It's that's part of who I am. Mm-hmm. I was in a abusive home growing up and sustained head injuries and physical injuries that still mm-hmm. impact me today and that are the primary way that disability manifests in my okay. own body. Mm-hmm. And then by birth and adoption, I have six kids. Among them, they have autism, cerebral palsy, ADHD, asthma, HIV, and a few other things in the mix. And so, uh, and I also live with chronic illnesses. I taught special ed for the first few years that I was out of college and have my master's of education in special education, specifically learning disabilities and autism. Mm -hmm. And For a long time, I tried very hard to be an activist outside of the community. So advocating for and teaching others about disability, but leaving my story out of it. Mm. I, I knew that one of the ways ableism manifests is that disabled people are not always treated as full people. Mm, And I felt like it was so important for people to understand disability. And I didn't want my disabilities to cause anyone to question what I was saying. That was my own internalized ableism. And I've been much more open and active in sharing my own experiences over the past five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then the one other area that is a really important intersection with disability is that I am a disabled parent, parenting disabled children. And Mm -hmm. there is a lot of complexity in both being a disabled parent and parenting disabled children Mm -hmm. and how I interact with both communities, uh, other disabled Mm -hmm. people and other parents who have disabled children. Wow. Ooh, Lordy Jesus. (laughs) Shannon. You know, Shannon, first of all, thank you for sharing that. And I also just want to say, wow, girl, you know, I think one of the things that I I realized when I was doing some reflection on all three of you is that you were literally, all three of you have some of the strongest voices I know, period. Like you literally do. And I imagine that that strength comes from the amazing, it's like you get a workout every day, just living. (laughs) you are strong. You're all three incredibly strong women. And and your story is a manifestation of that, Shannon. Thank you for sharing that. How about, how about you, Lisa? Well, thank you for, first of all, for having me. um, Mm -hmm. This is really a powerful, I don't even know how I'm going to enter this because if I'm really honest, I've struggled my whole life with even how I identify or don't identify as a disabled person. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I was born with one of my legs was a lot shorter than the other. And when I was 12, I had my right leg amputated below the knee. Mm. And before that, though, I wore like a shoe to build up 
my legs so that they were even and leg braces. And so my disability was was really obvious. Mm -hmm. And what I was very aware of as a child with that situation was having to navigate the space where people felt like my body was kind of porous, like they could just ask me any question. Mm. What's wrong with you? Mm. How did that happen to you? And so there was always a sense that I was explaining who I was and how Mm. I walked through the world, literally how I was walking through the world. Yeah. After I had my surgery, one of the things that happened that I didn't expect, I mean, it was very traumatic at 13 to have my leg amputated, Yeah, but it became an opportunity. And I'm putting that in quotes to hide Mm. because now what people could obviously see they couldn't see anymore. You know, I'm wearing long pants, I'm walking through the world. And suddenly I didn't quote unquote, look like a person with a disability. And so I got very, very good at performing, not disability. Mm -hmm. And because I have a natural inclination to be athletic, Mm. um, I would just, you know, do everything, go to my fitness classes, just kind of present myself in the world as not that mm. and 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 kind of let myself be open when I felt like I could, but mm-hmm. sort of retreating back and forth. And I'm telling the story for the first time ever, actually, that yeah. kind of retreating back and forth. Um, mm. Because I think there was a part of me that felt like, oh my God, so I'm a black woman, I'm a queer woman, I come from a working class background, how many more of the things, the identities do I have to carry? And do I have to carry this identity as disabled woman? Wow. Wow. uh, My God. Like, no, I'm sorry. I'm I'm in that. I'm feeling Mm -hmm. that. I'm Mm -hmm. actually seriously in that. Because as a Black woman, the Blackness itself is is a life-altering experience. And then you place on top of that a disability. Wow. You like did an actual calculation in your head. Yes. And said, do I, and so when do I want to carry this? And is this safe? Of course, that's, that's all a fiction, right? It's right, fiction right, right. That we can com- compartmentalize our bodies this way. And that just because I quote unquote decide I'm not mm-hmm. doesn't actually mean I'm not and doesn't have anything to do with how I'm perceived and doesn't actually stop the, so what's wrong with you? Why do you walk with a limp? Um, What's going on in your body? And I mean, I feel that as a black woman all the time, the kind of looking at, the kind of gazing on my physicality or my way of moving through the world. And so that, that is and remains a struggle. And I think my biggest work as a person who is committed to social justice and who is committed to the fullness of black women's lives is for me as a personal, as a person who's internalized some of that ableism, but also Mm -hmm. for all of us to be able to push past that place where we have to perform a normal that actually never is and doesn't exist. Yes. Oh my God. Exactly. And I, let me just say, I think I I did. Can I ask you, did you write your title at Auburn? 
the embodied justice leadership? Because that is so perfect. Well, I came up with that with uh, our former former colleague that you know, Rabbi Justice Baird. We sat yeah. in his office one day and we just kind of thought about the work that I do at Auburn, thought mm. about the work I do with Black women through Sojourner Truth Leadership Circle, mm-hmm. thought about the intersection between that work that is specifically centered on loving Black women as a spiritual calling for our time and Mm. how that actually intersects with a broad understanding of social justice and transformation for all people. And we Mm -hmm. just kind of sat there and said, this sounds like the right title for that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the the thing that just strikes me is the embodiment, right? And as a woman who has wrestled with the question of disability in your life and yet experienced it and how to identify. I feel like it's a prophetic, your own title is a prophetic call for you to live in your body, right? Like in the Absolutely. whole body, in the whole. Absolutely. And wow. I think the thing that's powerful about the prophetic call of the title mm-hmm. is the reality that we're always in that struggle of becoming fully human and fully authentic. So I actually think it's like a work of the spirit that I'm even saying these things in this context that I wouldn't have ordinarily said because there is, there could be, I've decided not to feel that, but there could be a shame attached to admitting that I've gone through this place where I've had the privilege of saying, I'm going to hide from this identity or I'm going to reveal this identity. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that I am saying that that's the reality that I've lived with is mm-hmm. a call to say, and we can do something different. I can mm-hmm. do something better that's beyond hiding and it moves into a fuller authenticity. Thank you. Wow. Ooh, Lord of Jesus, like I'm saying. Okay, so Amy. Amy, I just met Amy recently, y'all. And let me just tell you, she's a part of our global writers group that meets on Saturday mornings. And, you know, she showed up and I didn't know until until reading her byline at Sojourners that she's also a Shakespeare teacher. I'm like, oh, my God, really? That makes sense because her writing is amazing, amazing. And so you need to go today and read that piece at Sojourners that she wrote, Amy Kenny, and we'll link to it also in the show notes. Um, But Amy, what is your life's intersection with disability? Thank you so much for saying that, Lisa. Um, I'm glad this is being recorded so I can just replay that to myself anytime I'm feeling down that you think my writing is good. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Um, yes. Yes. Yeah, so I'm disabled and my disability oscillates between using various mobility devices. So I often use a wheelchair or a mobility scooter, um, sometimes a cane, and then sometimes I walk unassisted. And so there's no set script or narrative that really fits my disability or really anyone's. It's both visible and invisible, public and private. It exists in this liminal space where my disability lurks like a muscle memory of another life when I'm walking unassisted. And then when I'm in my mobility scooter, I know kind of what it's like to move about the world without it. Mm -hmm. So I have sort of this both and experience. I really resonate with what Lisa said about people asking her what's wrong with you continuously. That's something that happens a lot in a public space to people with disabilities. It's as though our bodies become public property. 
Mm. And people feel as though they have the right to ask invasive questions about my medical history, or um, often Mm. people will just randomly recommend um, remedies and treatments to me, (laughs) completely unsolicited. So yeah, I've been recommended everything, um, as I'm sure Shannon and Lisa have as well, from sleeping with a bar of soap to get out of my wheelchair, to um, yoga, to eating more avocado. I mean, you name it, I've heard it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, And I think, you know, I think people are for the most part, I think people are well-intentioned and that they just lack the understanding and the experience with people with disabilities and that they picture my body as though it is a problem to fix that invites for people to say, here's a remedy that can cure you. It's actually really problematic in terms of how we're thinking about disabled bodies in a public space. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. We're living in the kinds of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do when we are social distancing. (laughs) Then we're going to share what God poured into the world through us. Your one-year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. So this is, again, for everybody, what do you think is the core spiritual lie that most people believe about differently abled people? So and when I say core spiritual lie, let me explain that. Um, there's actually context for that. It's What I'm hearkening back to is uh, something that Gandhi actually explained, and then they also used in the civil rights movement to identify the lie, the spiritual lie that most of society believes, including including the oppressed themselves. And it's the lie that allows injustice to be upheld. It, it, it allows everybody to go along with injustice right in the room, but everybody thinking that's normal. So what do you think is the core spiritual lie that most people are believing about differently able people? And how does that lie manifest in your like life daily? So I want to jump in first on language before I am answering that. Yes. Differently abled is a term that is almost exclusively used by abled people. 
Oh my goodness, really? Yeah. I thought I was, I thought I was being all sensitive. Oh my gosh. Well, okay. and I, and I me, loved, please. yeah, I love that you brought it up because it allows us to have this real conversation. Um, yeah, that's right. I don't have different abilities that mm. manifest. I don't have a cape. I can't fly. Um, I can't do all of these things. Wow, that's so good. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, However, I keep my cape in, in, in the back room. I take it out occasionally. She's <laughs> like, I have a cape. <laughs> go on, go on, Lisa. That, no, thanks, Shannon. That's really good. Keep going. Yeah, I'm sorry. well, and, and the complexity there also, because most of us here in this conversation experience the responses and realities of physical disabilities. Yeah. My autistic son definitely would say he has different and extra abilities because mm -hmm. he, his hearing is more sensitive and his ability to categorize and process information is quite different from mine. Yeah, yeah. And so there are some times that there are different things that do kind of offer a a different sort of ability or different sort of perspective but differently abled is often for me code that someone is very uncomfortable with the word disabled itself and possibly mm. with disability as a whole you know what okay so oh my gosh like you saying that literally makes me examine it and i think you're right i mean of course you're right but but i'm realizing oh my god you're totally right and i'm seeing it in myself i think that that language which i picked up of course we all pick it up from somewhere else right so mm -hmm. i picked up but what it does is it actually it is it centers a perspective of the world where ability is the thing like the ability to have ability is the thing as opposed to because you know you're you feel the need to highlight the person's abilities differently abled as opposed to the reality that you know homegirl is struggling you know she's struggling through the world and she's got stuff to to, to get through does that make sense am i being insensitive please tell me having a disability by itself doesn't necessarily mean struggling and I don't think that I struggle as much as people assume that I do because this is my normal. Disability mm. is often seen as an abnormal part of humanity wow. and it's normal. It's yeah. something that we all experience in different ways, whether that be through friends or family members or just this culture that yeah. tries to tell us that Ooh. disability isn't good or can't be good. Wow. There are so many layers there. And so <sighs> learning to even interrogate the words we use. Yes assumption of suffering often people will write that someone suffers from cerebral palsy my daughter zoe does not suffer <laughs> um, mm. there are difficulties and things and sometimes suffering that comes along with her disability but that is not the first word anyone who knows zoe would use to describe mm. her and so just understanding the richness and the the meaning of the words we use yeah. is influenced by an ableist culture. 
Okay, so I'm sorry. I, I just I, forgive me, but I really am processing this like in live time here, and I'm realizing this is a lot like my experience of being an African American woman down in Cape May, New Jersey. Love my friends in Cape May. So anybody listening from Cape May, God bless you. I love you. But there was an experience of people whispering when they said when they said the word black. <laughs> yes. Like they would literally, yeah. right? You talk as well. Okay, so I'm starting again. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. they would, they would like I, and because they don't, they didn't know a lot of black people, and so they would say, you know, um, can you pick up that black purse right there? <laughs> I swear to God, like the oh word itself. God. I swear to you. So like the word itself was like this thing that you didn't really even acknowledge. And I first time I had somebody actually say to me was down there and say, I don't think of you as black, right? So there's a normalization of what humanity, normal humanity looks like is not black. And so I think I'm hearing you, Shannon, when you're saying there's a centering of abled bodies that our society has done. And so anything that's not that is not normal. And so therefore must be struggle. But it's, yes. it's just right. Okay. So I'm getting it. Okay. Quick, quick. I wanted to jump in on that because I almost wanted to flip the question about what is the core spiritual lie that we mm. tell about what it means to be in a body, to be a human mm. body, period. Ooh, and take that, us there. That, on, the, that the idea that bodies are, I mean, we've heard this, that it's white that it's cisgendered, that it's male, that it's able-bodied, however we Mm -hmm. define that, that it's Christian, that it's Mm -hmm. economically secure. All of those things Mm -hmm. are a bunch of assumptions about what we, how we decide who's walking and being and moving through the world is legitimate and whose is not. So there's like a hierarchy of being that gets created. So Mm -hmm. I would say that there's where that core spiritual lie works. And for me, it's Mm -hmm. very tied to race as well. Yes, yes. Because I think about how during slavery, there's that memory that I know in my body. Come on. What it must have been like for our people's worth to be measured. And for bodies to be measured according to their productivity. So that when we talk about disabled versus abled Mm. bodies, it's happening Mm. within a framework of talking about how much productivity can you produce within the context of this structure that is built on producing for the economy. For the white economy. For the white economy. And insofar as you cannot produce for that supremacist economy, your worth is devalued. And so ability and disability gets pitched as either good or bad, depending on that kind of logic. And so inside of that logic, Mm. that's why I love Shannon's point about ableism, not ableism, about able-bodied, because Mm -hmm. that when we pitched that, it's like able-bodied according to what standard? Able-bodied according to what I'm able to do, according to whose needs are being met. Struggling Mm -hmm. according to what? Mm -hmm. And and I think all of Mm. this goes back to this idea that the core lie is that the way that spirit, God, 
or even the, the realities of life. Some of us come upon disability through accident, disease, whatever it is. And this is actually a fact of life. Like, do I, who owes anybody? I don't owe anybody. I don't know how to say this exactly right. Go on. I think we're, I think we, we almost got you. Ability. It's not, yeah. that's, it's, it's, wow. it's, if I'm saying that right, mm. if that makes sense. Yes, yes. It's like health is not something that I owe the world. Being non-disabled is not something we owe the world. Or that um, God owes the world. Or that God, no, we owe to be fully human and wow. to create spaces where all of us can flourish. And <sighs> insofar as we don't do that, I would say that we're failing to fulfill our call that God has placed on all of us. And that oh. goes beyond the, the space where we're talking about ability or disability. Oh my God. I think that that idea of tying worth to productivity and contribution to society and health mm-hmm. and wealth, all mm-hmm. of that is suppressing the image of God in people with disabilities because it's saying yes. that we don't have inherent worth just because we're image bearers. And we know that that's the core spiritual lie, right? There is no hierarchy of image bearers. Someone isn't more or less bearing God's image. We all are. And it takes all of us to reflect God to the world and the beautiful diversity of God's creation. So I think it's also been helpful for me to talk about disability in terms of the social construct instead of a, a medical phenomena. So the idea that bodily difference isn't what makes someone disabled. It's that the world is centered on people who are able-bodied and then people who have disabilities face systemic barriers because the world is built around able-bodied white people. Wow. Ooh, Lordy Jesus again. Jesus is all up in this conversation. (laughs) I mean, really, you know, so here's, let me ask you this. So Two things. One is to go back to what Shannon and Lisa were saying just a minute ago, that your conversation reminds me of how Aristotle wrote his his treatise on interpretation, right? So, and it's on language. It's on the use of language. And he was trying to discern who's fully human in terms of language, like the use of language. So that's, it's striking to me how Aristotle's worldview has permeated everything, our theology, the way that we have shaped our world, and the way that we've centered ableness in the way we shape the world, but also race as well, and gender. It's all mixed up. That's the thing that just strikes me, is that all of these are all intertwined. They're not actually siloed issues. They all come from the same source. And then the second thing, Amy, the thing that really strikes me about what you just said, is that I think there's something in there was a question that I still have that I want to pose to all of you is, you know, when I went forward in that study of the biblical concept of Shalom and began to understand that Tov Me'od is really about the relationship between things. It's not saying that the things themselves were quote perfect because the Greeks, hence Aristotle, that was their project was to be perfect, to find the perfect thing. But that wasn't the Hebrew conception. The Hebrew conception was that perfection, if, if you will, lived between things. So it was relational. If that's true, then another part of what it means to be human on the first page of the Bible 
is that we are all, all of us called, divinely called by God to exercise dominion in the world. Now that's not about productivity. That's about stewardship of the world. That's about leadership. That's about the ability to make decisions that impact the world. And I think that what's striking to me is that the dehumanization of disabled people makes us assume that disabled people have no ability to exercise stewardship of their own, that they are to be stewarded. They are not to actually be the ones who cultivate and make decisions that impact the world. What do you guys think of that? It's definitely true. Uh, Spot on. We Mm. often in Christian circles consider disabled people as those to be ministered to rather than ministering with. We are objects in that sort of construct. And the question that Plato and Aristotle and Descartes were getting at is Mm. what is human? Descartes known for the, I think, therefore I am. But if I think differently... What does that mean? Mm. If I process things differently, as I do living with severe PTSD from my abuse, am I still whole? What is wholeness? What does it mean to be a good creation? Mm -hmm. And Mm. it becomes Mm -hmm. so... It becomes so rooted in oppression and in going back to my origins, my ancestors were the oppressors in just about any instance you can think of. Mm. They were. We, uh, my ancestors arrived in the 1600s. Uh, they owned slaves. They had mm. a plantation. And they were actively involved in the genocide of indigenous people. Wow. And considering all of that and knowing that part of my story and then connecting it to how we think about disability in the church mm. is yes. so rich and sad. There's so many different layers. I want to share a quick passage from A Disability History of the United States by Kim Nielsen, which is a good entry level. It's dense, but it is, it's something that is quite accessible for anyone even who is new to this whole concept of disability history, disability justice, what it is to be disabled. We'll link to it in, in the show notes too. Okay, great. So here's the passage. Indigenous scholars and activists Dorothy Lone Wolf Miller, Blackfeet, and Jenny R. Joe Navajo suggest that some indigenous nations have defined what might be called disability in relational rather than bodily terms. Well, there you go. Yeah. In indigenous cultures, disability occurred when someone lacked or had weak community relationships. Though individuals might experience impairment, disability would come only if or when a person was removed from or was unable to participate in community reciprocity. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's like, that's literally at the heart of Shalom that and it makes sense, right? Indigenous people all over the world, the Hebrews were a people connected to the land and connected to God, just like all indigenous people around the world. So if that's the truth, wow, 
that that needs to tell us something that's what that's how god understands disability it's when it's when we break the relationships it's when we have an impairment in the way that we connect with the rest of the community thank you shannon wow that was good thank you when shannon was saying that Lisa, it made me think mm-hmm. about right now in COVID-19 mm-hmm. and the way in which I've heard from many disability activists about how the way that some folks have lived with their disabilities are actually ways of living and being that we can learn from now as we fight this pandemic. And so then the idea of who we turn to for leadership shifts. If we then think that what is the cause of disability in the, in this is broken relationship. Hmm. If, if you're imagining now, I was thinking of my uh, scholar friend, Mia Mingus, who is a disability activist, and she writes about the way that people, if our society has always said working from home options are not good, but there have been many disabled folks who who need to work from home and that we can actually put things and structures in place in our society that can make that happen. But that can only happen when we look to the experience of disabled people who are making ways to live from home, making ways to understand what sheltering in place means. Well, kind of different ways of being and moving through the world that are underground because we're out of relationship with those communities but right now if we turn to the to the leadership of disabled folks we're actually saying that this is a space these are communities these are people that we need to be in relationship with in order to be whole and that our society is actually broken when we're not because there's learning and there's wisdom in all of our bodies from all of the spaces where we are Okay, so I want to, okay, so we are literally, okay, oh my goodness, I have a decision to make. So do we break here or do we keep going? Because I think we need to go one level deeper before we break. So I'm making this like executive decision. We're going to keep going (laughs) because I want to take us even deeper. Can we go even deeper, y'all? Yeah, definitely. All right. So how do we think about disability and abortion? We had a conversation about abortion and reproductive justice just two months ago, uh, two or three now, in terms of when people are listening to this. And it was the first time I had engaged like in a public, public space about this issue of abortion. And we did not touch. We didn't really. Well, there was somebody who mentioned disability, but it really wasn't about that. But I think that right now, at this point in this conversation, we need to talk about this because I, the thing I was, I am struck by when I think about it now is the reality that oftentimes abortions happen because parents fear the disability of their future child if there is going to be a disability. And so that is one of the intersections. And I know that I know I'm treading on in troubled waters. But I want to ask you, what do you think of this? How do you think about this? Because I think we have to have the conversation in order for us to move forward as a nation. Yeah, definitely. And you know, Lisa, that I have thoughts. Yes. 
Um, Yeah, the reality is that disabled women are more likely to have abortions or be sterilized without their consent. Disabled women are more likely to have life and health reasons for needing abortion access. And disabled fetuses are more likely to be aborted, even when their differences aren't life-threatening or medically complex. But there's some really interesting research that shows that in a community that is more accepting of disability and with more community involvement with disability rather than our previous habits of institutionalization and hiding away at home, that when disability is seen as a normal part of what humanity is, Babies, fetuses that are diagnosed prenatally with a disability are less likely to be aborted because those parents can see a place for a disabled child in their community. Wow. Um, And disabled people are often just excluded from this conversation as they are from reproduction, reproductive or sex ed, because we're assumed to be asexual. Mm -hmm. Um, When there are very, very, very few instances in popular culture where there are sexual relationships or even just intimate relationships with, Mm -hmm. but between a disabled person and anyone. We got close to that with the movie Shape of, The Shape of Water, because she, there was a disabled woman who had sexual relationship with this fish-like creature, but that even shows us that it, isn't even someone human that we're allowed, you know, if we're going to be sexual, it's got to be something that is so far other that that is the only way that we think about things. My, one of my dearest friends, Katie, has had her leg amputated because of childhood cancer. And she has literally been asked if she has half a vagina because- Yeah, oh because God. she she has pretty much no residual limb in the leg that's amputated. And this gets back to the the whole conversation of people feeling like they have yeah. the right to know our stories. As a mom to disabled children, I am regularly teaching them that this is your story and your story is sacred and you get to choose yeah. how and when and where it's told. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise disability stories are so often used as political pawns, which regularly happens in abortion debates on all sides Mm -hmm. of the issue. And yet very rarely are disabled voices present in those conversations. Well, now I have a feeling they will be after this. (laughs) Thank you so much. That's, that's wow. Uh, Can I ask Lisa, Lisa, where does disability intersect with the call of women of color for reproductive justice? I heard some of the echoes of that call in what Shannon just explained to us. Yeah, I did too, especially around this question of consent and the forced sterilization and forced abortions. I think that that question of consent and the notion of bodily autonomy, which is not the same thing in my mind as 
individualistic Marlboro person, I'm on my own in the universe sense of how we occupy our bodies. Right. But the integrity of our bodies to be able to name when or if and when, not only that we have children, but that we are empowered to take care of the children that we do have. I mean, when I think about this uh, in terms of Black women's history, I think about the fact that the reproductive justice conversation is complicated, not just around whether or not we're going to give birth, but whether or not there's the capacity to, to love and nurture and take care of the children that we have, whether or not our sex and sexuality is seen as belonging to us and as centers of pleasure. And all of these things, I think, intersect with the question of ability and disability, because, again, as Shannon was saying, there's this notion of infantilizing or taking away the, the sense of autonomy of yeah. black women and women of color and disabled folk all of that is kind of a mixture and to actually be able to like pull them all apart is, mm. is much more difficult than we think i'm thinking of oh my my god like you my mind is going in a million directions yeah. <laughs> about where the sections are both in literature and in our real lived experience i'm thinking about the character in the book beloved oh uh, baby sugs holy character mm. the character that enjoined the community to retreat into the clearing to remember that they are flesh to mm. remember that their bodies which were often broken by slavery which were often made disabled by slavery including mm. baby sugs the character who had the twisted hip and so she would walk into the middle of the community with her twisted hip, which means her disabled body. And she would proclaim for herself and for the entire community that we as Black people, whose bodies have been reduced to the substance of our production, are in fact beloved, that our bodies are worthy, that the children that we would birth or not birth are entitled or should be entitled to come into a world that is free and to a world where we can love them. And when that doesn't happen, and that's where I think the conversation of reproductive justice comes in. Mm -hmm. How do we create the conditions for us to consent to bring our children into the world, to consent to not, if that is that is what we decide to do as Black women, mm -hmm. um, but to have all of that be within the context of our wholeness and wellness. I think that all of that is mixed up in the place of the question about disability and race. On Freedom Road, from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod.
Amy, you recently published that article that I talked about earlier at Sojourners, and you said in the article, I have almost every form of privilege someone can have, and I am still not considered fully human by ableist standards. Some of the worst ableism I've experienced has been inside the church. And actually, Shannon mentioned this earlier as well. So three things struck me about that piece that you wrote. One, that you wrote it at Freedom Road's Global Writers Group. Hello. <laughs> that was awesome. So we got to we got a first taste of it there. Two, that you talk about not being seen as fully human. And so that really echoes back to our previous conversation But this last piece is what I want you to talk about right now is that you say it's worst in the church. So can you explain that? How is it worst in the church? Absolutely. I think it's that the church pretends that they have a different standard and is often really hypocritical in doing so. So often the church tries to create this kind of sacred and secular divide wherein the world creates these oppressions and sees people as less than, but in the church, you can come as you are, you can be accepted, etc. Mm-hmm. And I just haven't found that to be true in my lived experience. There's it often happens that someone in different church spaces tries to pray away my disability. Mm. Um, so I'll, you know, go to a church using my wheelchair or walking with a cane and someone will immediately come up to me and say, God told me to pray for you. I'm supposed to pray, you know, that you would be made whole. And there's just lots of assumptions there about what whole is, what, what it means to be not whole. And then Mm -hmm. I think also there's a real misreading of the Bible through ableist lens. So the idea that Jesus's healing ministry is about bodies and isn't about actually restoring people to their societies. Um, (sighs) The idea that healing and curing are the same thing, which they're, they're not. And then just a real lack of interrogation of some of the other passages in the Bible that seem to hold up disability. So we know that God declares that he will build a kingdom based on the remnant of the lame and the blind We know that Jesus retains those disabling scars from the cross as a victory after resurrection. Wow. We know that the poor, crippled, lame, and blind, those are that's a quote, are invited to the great banquet in Luke. And that's usually read as eschatology. And there's even a passage in Daniel that talks about God's throne having fiery wheels. And I like to picture my wheelchair kind of being reminiscent of God's throne. And so I think that where the church has gone wrong is that they want to erase disability or they want to eradicate it. And they think that that's what healing is when actually that's eugenics. Oh, Lord Jesus. Once again, eugenics. You ended on eugenics, girl. You did. You did that. Wow. That's you. I'm sorry. I'm I'm just really taking that in. It's eugenics when the church structures its life around those who are the strongest, the fittest, quote unquote. 
Right. And just as Shannon's saying before, we can't just minister to people with disabilities. We have to allow for them to flourish and lead. And we need to learn from people with disabilities. There's a great deal that people with disabilities can teach people with able bodies about how to, you know, create and define worth, not based on productivity, about how to rid themselves of this notion of success that we have here in America, about how God isn't interested, you know, in this hierarchy of oppression of, you know, climbing on the backs of some of our brothers and sisters in order to gain wealth or prominence. And I think there's lots of different ways of reading the Bible as well that we can learn from people with disabilities. Thank you so much for breaking this down. Let me just say, I'm just going through my head. One of the thoughts that's going through my head right now is the reality that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the pastors that I know, the leaders that I know, the leaders inside the church, like who are, you know, ordained and ordained by the church to actually lead the flock, right? I'm thinking how many of these leaders that I know are people who outwardly struggle or forgive me for that language, but you know, who are disabled. There are not many, and especially in the evangelical world. I think if I think of the ones that I know most of them are probably in the mainline world because they've probably been dealing with this within themselves, that worldview within themselves maybe a little longer. But within the evangelical world where I grew up and my faith was formed, really the paragon, the paragon of church leadership, which, you know, in that world, it's like, this is what everybody's striving to be. You're trying to be like the leader is the able-bodied white male. It's Aristotle's able-bodied white male. It is. It makes me also think that inside of this, God, I really loved what Amy said, but it made me think about the fear that's inside that people, there's a fear about disability. Yeah. And so when the person comes in and and says, you know, here I'm here, I, I got the call to, you know, heal you or tell you how you can be made whole. I think it goes back to that thing about breaking relationships between us, because is there a fear underneath that? If I can see you and figure out how you can be made whole, whatever that means, Mm -hmm. um, how the disability can be washed away, then I don't have to deal with the fact that everybody's ability is a temporary situation. Hello. And so I can sort of put that over there and put that on those bodies. Similarly, getting back to that thing I was saying earlier about being reduced to our work and our productivity, the whole society is actually pitched towards that way. But if you can put that on certain people's bodies, if you can put that over there on them, then we don't have have to actually grapple with the fact that there may be some fear there, like, what if my body, what if my mind, what if my cognitive ability doesn't function the way that quote unquote normal folks are supposed to function? Then wow. where will I be? And maybe, you know, and so that's like, I, I hear that inside of a lot of this conversation. Me too. And can I just say that that it feels like it's really a call to a circle, to community in a circle where we see each other as truly going back to the beginning of the conversation as truly equally human. 
and where we are in community. And it, it will it will require of those who are abled or who are or more abled that they they actually get over themselves. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's a way that I think as somebody who is more able-bodied, but honestly with age becoming more disabled, the fear that is in me as I get older is encountering the challenges to in being able to engage with the rest of the community, the rest of the able-bodied community as more, you know, and I know I see things that are, that are shaped and designed for people with more able bodies. And so, but then I'm locked out of that. I'm not able to do that. What would it look like if we, as a community, as the church, actually structured our things, our spaces, our our places for the community, not for some productivity goal or some, some to do something, but rather to serve the community. Am I making sense? Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. I'm thinking of all the ways that folks in, in disability communities are doing it for ourselves and then opening it up to others. I'm thinking okay. about this website that I subscribe to is called Decolonizing Fitness. And so it has people of all different abilities and body types and shapes and everything who are the leaders of how we move in our bodies. I'm thinking about how people in yoga communities are actually moving away from from yoga as a commodity to yoga as the spiritual practice it is. And then bringing in, there's the, there's a movement with amputee yoga folks. There's like ways in which there are wow. people who are doing work on the ground who are saying we're leaders in this and it creates a space that's more open. I was with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, our friend over the summer. And one of their practitioners was doing that kind of yoga that was opening it up to all of our bodies and (sighs) all of our abilities. And, and, and the, and the leader who by outward appearances did not have any disabilities was actually struggles all of her life with chronic pain. And so she's having to navigate how she can move her body through the world, but people don't see that disability. But what's happening is that people are creating spaces where there is transformation. And I think churches have a lot to learn from movements like these that are grassroots and kind of underground, where folks are saying, we're taking the initiative around how we are going to lead in our bodies, and not just for ourselves, but for everyone, because we're a part of the community. So what does repentance require of the church? What do you think? Because, you know, repentance is turning and walking another direction. That's all it really means. What is it? What would it look like for the church to walk in a direction that mended community? I think the church should acknowledge that and repent for that it was wrong to fight to be excluded from the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990. Oh, my goodness. A first step to acknowledge that that was actually wrong, that, you know, and Shannon actually has a great article about this in Sojourners about how churches at the time and private schools fought saying it was too cost prohibitive and that it was, you know, basically the government meddling in, in their freedoms. And basically we received the message. We're not worth the cost. We don't actually 
you know, the church doesn't actually care if people with disabilities have access to church spaces. So I think that would be the first step. And then it would be to move from inclusion to belonging. So there's a big difference between saying, hey, you're welcome here at our church, but we still want to fix everything about your disability or we don't want to look at it or acknowledge it. And actually giving people with disabilities the space to belong and the space to thrive. Mm, and grow and lead. Yes. Oh, love that. But others. And some of the lack of disabled leadership that you were commenting on, Lisa, within churches, particularly evangelical churches, is because of fighting against the ADA meant that Christian schools from early childhood and beyond have not been required to be accessible. So if we think of the population of people who have gone to seminary, I have many friends who would like to go to seminary, but have not been able to find a seminary that would actually accommodate their disabilities. And so who leads and how we value leadership, particularly in spaces where we value education, it all becomes complex of, okay, well, to have disabled leaders, what needs to come first? Do we need to be trusting disabled people? I would say yes. Do we need to be opening up access to what it means to and what the prerequisites we consider for leadership? Yes. And being able to recognize that is such an important piece that I really think repentance from the church looks like, and and the absolute first step is seeing us as people, you know, that, Mm. that our realities are our realities. And Mm -hmm. we have this tendency, not as much now, but, oh, it's still present to, do what the disciples did in John 9, 2, which is ask, why is this man disabled? Was it him or his parents who sinned? Right. And that whole mentality drives a whole lot of what we do. And we stop there and we don't move on to the next verse where Jesus talks about the work of God being manifested in disability and in this person. Mm. We also love, in in loving our healing stories, we want tidy bows on so Mm -hmm. many things. Mm -hmm. I have had dozens of surgeries on my knees and on my spine and other in other ways to be able to you know I joke that I'm humpty dumpty you know like putting things back together again and the reality is we love 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 the story of the men in the furnace in Daniel Mm-hmm. Not because they end up in the furnace. That's not the thing that is lauded. It's that they leave the furnace not smelling of smoke. Well, now, oh, preach, go preach. And my body, my body is covered in scars. My body, Jesus's mm-hmm. hands were scarred. Yes. The reality of not 
smelling like smoke within the church tends to be being all better. But what is all better? I was born not all better, according to ableist standards. And so Mm. being able Mm. to say, hey, we are fine with and open to and consider in full belonging those who live in the furnace, those who aren't going to be coming out this side of heaven and in heaven aren't going to necessarily be manifesting the way that so many able people think that we will be. Wow. And, mm. and just being able to, to see that and to understand that I am not a project. My children are not projects for you to fix, but rather people to belong and love and be loved and show love to others. And help to lead. Yes, yes. And we can't be considered leaders if we're not considered full people. That's right. I'd love to see Mm -hmm. uh, like a 10-year or even a year-long project that hinges on, I think it was the notion of there is no hierarchy of image bearers. I don't know who said that earlier, whether Mm -hmm. it was Shannon or Amy. but Amy. Yes. Like what if there was actually, you know, a year where the church took a year or a period of time and collectively really dug into there is no hierarchy of image bearers and had disabled folk at the table to create what manifesting that in our congregations and in our faith communities would actually look like from who is in the pulpit, from whose voice is heard, from how we change the physical buildings that we have to how we throw away the idea that we have, that, that our being together has to necessitate that we physically be in the same space. I mean, if one thing we're learning right now is through the, uses of our technology is that there are actually ways that we can move around how we can physically be together being together in spirit and then that opens up the space for more bodies to be able to be present who may not ever be able to be physically present in the space no matter how much we modify it so i just i would love i'm very project oriented like what is the year of jubilee (laughs) like what is the year of there is no hierarchy of image bearers look like for the church and and to see that at this historical moment when we have political you know activists who are out there and who are saying we can that we will not go back to normal in the face of this crisis what is the new quote-unquote normal that actually has space for all of us to be recognized as fully human and how do we hold our leaders our communities our institutions and our governments accountable and what does flourishing in our world and inside the church look like when that happens? What do you see when that happens? Honestly, I think it's hard for me to answer that question right now because our family and I have been really 
have experienced some deep wounds with ableism in recent years. And now our church is showing up for us and loving us quite well in the aftermath of my husband's death. Mm. And I'm starting to trust more, but we had a pastor just a few years ago say that our family used more resources than any other family in the church. And if we mm-hmm. wanted anything more, he didn't know what to say. Mm-hmm. And that still, that along with other mm-hmm. hurts along the way, and of course, involving my very jumbled view of God right now, just in the midst of grieving my husband dying at 37 in such a weird way that he did. I, Mm -hmm. I don't know what flourishing looks like because Mm -hmm. I think that I'm scared to even imagine it because I face such disappointment in the church. Uh, Okay. Okay. Thank you for that, Shannon. I don't, I honestly, I don't really have words. I feel like part of me wants to just come and hug you. Can I give you a hug, you know, virtually? Yes. <laughs> I want to give you a big hug virtually to hold you tight and just say, please forgive us on behalf of the abled, able-minded church, the church that centers the able-bodied. And I see it in myself, not just the church, but our whole world has operated according to the logics of white supremacy. And quite honestly, that is not only about whiteness, it's about maleness, it's about able-bodiedness. It's about Christianness, as Lisa said earlier. And I think that I just see, I see, I see, I see it. I see it. I see our sin. And I don't think I knew until now how much I've been longing to hear words like that. And you know me, we've had, you and I have had hard conversations before and I work really hard. It's not the healthiest thing, but not to cry. And I am, I'm weeping right now in realizing that, that I have been longing for an expression of repentance, for an acknowledgement that forgiveness even needs to be on the table. And so thank you for that, Lisa. I'm I'm crying too. I know. <laughs> we Lisa Anderson and I get into this all the time, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. It's probably both of us. He right? is a I, sacred. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Tears are flowing from my eyes right now. I think often about how powerful it is that we worship a God who stands outside tombs and says, why are you crying? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we've, we like to to get rid of all of our emotion because we think that makes us strong. Mm. But I think, you know, God knows our tears and feels our wounds. And I think that's, that they are sacred. I think that the thing, the thing that strikes me about even just this interaction is that, you know, I want to jump to the flourishing part. I want to jump to the vision. And I think there is a reality that the people perish without a vision. So we need to have that vision But at the same time, isn't that kind of the triumphalism of whiteness? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Isn't that kind of the the triumphalism of 
you know, we will have victory and not really realizing the reality that that relationship is broken. That's right. I, Lisa, you know, when I was imagining that, that year where we're of, of that Jubilee, it does have to come from within inside of the space where the people have been wounded. Yeah. Um, and, and I also think that for me, when I say the church, I think of, I've always thought of the church as much smaller than the institution. Mm. And when I say smaller, I've always thought it's a remnant yeah. That, yeah. Will, that will acknowledge and say and ask for forgiveness and then wait for the one who has been wounded or not to say, to take the step in towards. Because I don't, because even an apology doesn't mean that Mm-hmm. Without the action, doesn't mean that the person needs to accept that apology. There has to be mm-hmm. a repair that's mm-hmm. gradual. Mm-hmm. But the wounding that the church has done is so great that every act has to be inside of the acknowledgement and not even the guarantee that the one who is wounded will say, okay, I'll be back. But I'm inspired always by the alternative remnant spaces that have always existed. People in disability communities. That's why I named those those uh, decolonizing fitness places. These small pockets, so awesome, yeah. Those small pockets of spaces that are resistance, but that also are building um, spaces of joy and and radical inclusion, like Yvette Flunder says. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C. And this episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road, LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates and make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss the next one. We promise we will not flood your inbox with all of our stuff. We'll just let you know when stuff is coming your way. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first week of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.